Welcome to the Why God Why podcast, brought to you by Browncroft Community Church. My name is Dylan Carnivale, and I'm the Browncroft staff and producer of the show. I'm joined today by our host, Peter Englert, the Director of Adult Ministries here at Browncroft, and John Amayo, the New York State Crew Director. Why God Why is a podcast where we ask 21st century questions about God that you never thought you could. And today we have Chuck DeGroat. He's a professor at Western Theological Seminary. And we're asking the question, why do abusive leaders thrive inside the church? Wow. Well, this conversation is one that I am really looking forward to. And of course, you know, we say that on a lot of these, but this one I feel like is really going to kind of be a combination of emotional for some of us. It might actually trigger some things in our lives as we look at this topic and really consider it. And I think it's also very applicable. I've been uh, watching the series that everybody is obsessed with right now, Tiger King on Netflix. And it is basically about people who own tigers. So if you can imagine, people who own tigers are typically fairly narcissistic people. That's what I picked up from this. Uh, but, and you would think, well, you know, that doesn't happen in the church. Actually, I think, unfortunately, it's not just limited to people who own tigers. But uh, I think that's one of the reasons why this is such an important conversation to have today. Peter, what do you think about uh, this combo today? Well, first of all, I just want to start when I told people that we were interviewing Chuck and I let him know this before we started recording. There was a few people that Facebook messaged me and said, hey, I just I want to thank you for doing this interview. Uh, one other thing I just want to tell our listeners, uh, we're, we are recording this during the coronavirus, so there might be some technical stuff. So we're just looking for some grace. I'm not going to say much, but I just finished reading uh, the book. And I would just want to read this passage because I think it just sets us up so well. Uh, Chuck says this, when we have the courage to look in the long invisible bag, we may find scary places of ourselves, but we also discover hidden treasure, deep passions, and holy longings we may have missed. We are image bearers of a good and loving God who pursues our wholeness even when we're not aware of it. Our active participation in the pursuit is vital for ourselves, for the church, and for the world. And uh, I'll just kind of, as I throw to Chuck, what I loved about this conversation, this book, wherever you at are listening to Chuck, he does a great job of, number one, helping you heal um, from painful leaders, but also that quote there summed up to me how not to become a leader like that. So as we get started, Chuck, uh, our question is, what, ab- what do abusive leaders thrive in the church or why? Um as you've kind of done this study, what are some common types of abuse that you've seen in the church? And I also think we, you know, sometimes we were like, oh, that's not abuse. That's just the way someone is. What are some things that you noticed in, in writing this book? Yeah, I like that last comment, especially because sometimes people will call it a lead, leadership style rather than abuse. And we see that quite a bit. But uh we, of course, see the like high profile sexual abuse cases come up every now and then, uh, but those are fewer and far between. It's really the more kind of silent 
uh, invisible wounds of emotional and spiritual abuse that you see a whole lot more in the church, the humiliation, the bullying, uh, character assassination, shaming, those kinds of things. And I think about that in terms of emotional abuse, but then when you layer spiritual abuse on top of that, uh, you layer scripture on top of that, shaming people with the use of scripture or by using your you know, church ecclesial authority uh, because you're a pastor, because you've got the stage, because you've got the bully pulpit. That's where it gets really dangerous. And, and that's where oftentimes people sort of second guess their own experience because like, how could the pastor do this? Uh, you know, the pastor, the pastor's a, a good guy. He's got a master of divinity. He's a reverend. He can't possibly be a bully, can he? Mm, wow, that is that is so good. How would you define for us? Can you set kind of a, a baseline, if you will, for that term spiritual abuse? Because some of us are like we hear that term and, and it resonates. Others kind of are, are maybe thinking, OK, I, I'm not sure that I really understand fully what you're talking about with that. Can you can you give us a little bit of a baseline for that? What what do you mean when you talk about spiritual abuse? Yeah, so spiritual abuse is really a form of emotional or psychological abuse. And I like to flip it sometimes. Think about what a healthy relationship looks like. Uh, think about empathy. Think about someone who's compassionate, who cares, who pursues you, who's curious. And then now flip the script. Think about someone who uh, abuses your trust, who manipulates you, who does not have the capacity to be empathetic, who twists your words. Uh, Th that's what we're talking about when we're talking about emotional abuse and then spiritual abuse, of course, that's where, that's where we twist words in the name of Jesus, right? Uh, right. That's where we use our spiritual authority to, to say, of, of course, you're wrong. Uh, I, 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 you know, know I've got, got a master's divinity, 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 maybe a couple of you, you have, have master's, master's divinity, divinity too. Of course, I, I know, know the Bible far more, more than these others who have not mastered divinity yet, mm. right? And yeah. so now we're using scriptures, particular scriptures or uh, theology to put people in their place uh, or to shame people or to, to uh, in some way sort of convince them that they're wrong or they're missing something um, or they can't possibly understand that because they don't have the training that we do. Uh, and that, that's where spiritual abuse uh, in the church gets uh, really toxic and really dangerous. Hmm. Yeah, so... So, Chuck, um, yeah. one of my... Okay. Go no, ahead, go ahead, Chuck. Peter. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. That's the corona pause. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the corona pause right there. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so, Chuck, one of, um, one of the really fascinating uh, examples in the book uh, was you talked about the young, charismatic church planning pastor who like you would interview and all of a sudden like you'd be like all these red flags like they just yeah. look like the perfect pastor the perfect person and you're saying this is a narcissist and so I, I guess I'm kind of wondering in that context how does narcissism contribute to abuse in the church because it seems like it's a surprise to people until you're actually in it and I think that the question I'm asking is, you see a long process. It's not like a surprise to you. No, it's it's not a surprise, although you would be surprised. I mean, I miss it sometimes. Um, uh, you know, oftentimes narcissistic leaders are pretty convincing. 
they're compelling. Uh, and when I sit with, when I do psychological assessment, assessments, for instance, and I sit with a church planter, uh, and this church planter has tons of support, financial support, resources, and they've got maybe big names backing them, Tim Keller, whoever, you know, they call upon as, as someone who's uh, uh, recommending them. It's tough sometimes to see it, uh, but it eventually comes out. And oftentimes I see it when I push in just a little bit. I press, press in with a question or perhaps, perhaps something comes up where I, uh, uh, in my psychological assessment, maybe there's a spike on the narcissistic spectrum and I, I just sort of name it. Uh, and then I get the defensiveness. And I talk about this in the book. Oftentimes it's when I just kind of lean into that harder conversation. And then what I get back is, oh, I knew it. You psychologists are all out to get guys like us. You know, all we're trying to do is serve the church, serve the kingdom. I'm just an ambassador of the kingdom. How come you're after me? And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. All I did was just press in a little bit to ask, you know, to ask a question about your marriage or about how you relate to others. And you get this kind of wall of defensiveness. That's where I, I start to see it with that resistance or defensiveness. Wow. Wow. I love how you're describing that. So, okay. Can, can you, can you bring us into that a little bit more? Like specifically, yeah. how do you, how, how do you engage that question? Like, how do you even start there to press into a spot where people get defensive yeah. immediately? Like what, what, yeah. what do you, do you have the consistent question that you're asking or are you looking for, Oh, I think maybe for this person's life, this is the thing that I need to ask. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's tricky. It's different every time. I, I do think that one of the things that has changed for me over the years is that I used to be a bit more aggressive in my approach uh, and more direct and even confrontational at times. And I realized that now that the walls are so high and so thick for someone who's diagnosably narcissistic, that you can't barrel through. Uh, it, it, part of it is just uh, engendering some trust so that they can know or see that you're for them. And that's, that's really tough. I often talk about narcissism on a spectrum. Uh, that spectrum is narcissistic style, type, and disorder. And there, if, if a person is not as elevated on the spectrum, they will be more capable of letting you in. In other words, uh, the defenses will be just a little bit lower. But I rarely do I get around the defenses of someone with narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, that's where we just, in, in many ways, uh, people who do what I do kind of say at that point, we're just trying to mitigate damage. Uh, we don't often see the, the kind of transformation that you'd hope for. So Chuck, I, I want to move us towards more victims. Um, yeah. I think that's a great description. We'll probably come back to the leaders, but uh, what I'm curious about is... So you talk about narcissism being on a spectrum. So right. hypothetically, let's say there's a low spectrum, like, yeah. you know, it's, it, this person is spiritually healthy, but they're not like, they have some tendencies versus like really abusive. I think with millennials and, and Gen Z, the thought is the, the stereotype would be they quit any job that has any sort of narcissism to also all the way to the other side, which is, there's some people that stay because, hey, they're like, I'm committed. As you think of a victim, mm -hmm. you know, what advice would you give them in kind of engaging the situation of narcissism? What's yeah. like, 
hey, this person's just a fallen sinful leader versus like, no, this person's like, like they're not healthy and not helpful to you. Yeah, that's tricky because oftentimes victims are like, you know, frogs in, in you know, the pot that's, that slowly comes to a boil, right? You don't realize it until it's scalding you, the water is scalding you. Uh, many of these victims are, are simply looking for uh, uh, an ideal leader, someone who will meet them in the midst of their big questions and their big insecurities. We often find that uh, in my kind of work, if you've been abused in the past, you're more likely to seek out someone who will abuse you. And oftentimes victims uh, have pasts where they have been uh, hurt or traumatized in some way. And so they come with all that pain and all that insecurity uh, and, and they're looking for someone to save them. And this is that Messiah complex, that savior complex of a, of a narcissistic leader. Um, uh, save me, uh, heal my wounds, right? So there's, and, and, and that narcissistic leader is happy to accept that, right? Uh, that's exactly what he's looking for. Uh, but, but yeah, I think there, there's something there where I, th I think those who've been victimized uh, recognize that they were looking for something. Uh, that they they were seeking out someone to to heal their wounds to fix them in some sort of way, and um, they placed their trust in someone that actually hurt them. Yeah, yeah. So, what do you, what do you recommend for somebody who is in the midst of a situation like that? I mean, I think yeah. a lot of us can resonate with the description that you're talking about, and maybe even resonate with experiencing that. Yeah. Um, what do you, what do you recommend for somebody who, who is going, man, maybe I'm in the middle of this situation right now? Yeah. Well, so, uh, my first recommendation is don't do it alone. Um, because you, you will not be able to figure this out on your own. Uh, you need someone who knows these kinds of dynamics, a therapist, a spiritual director, a friend to walk with you through it. Uh, oftentimes, the first instinct is to confront the narcissistic leader or system. And so we get a meeting with the elders. We go to Starbucks with the pastor and we say, uh, you know, I think you're a narcissist. I just read Chuck's book. Uh, you know, not helpful, not helpful at all. I mean, the book, the book is helpful, I hope. But uh, you've got to uh, tend to your own wounds first and then. Perhaps down the road, you might want to figure out a way to engage, or maybe not. Maybe, maybe the point is not engaging. Uh, but oftentimes, there is significant trauma there, and that requires uh, some healing. And that takes time, days, weeks, maybe even months. And so my, my first recommendation always, always, always is to get the care that you need uh, for your own trauma. Chuck, let's uh, let's get to kind of lunch pail Monday through Friday. Like, right. how do I know that I'm in a narcissistic environment or system? Mm, good question. Yeah, well, so uh, narcissistic systems uh, look a lot like the narcissistic individual. They're grandiose. Uh, they're special. They're they think that they're better than the next. Uh, uh, the next organization or church down the road. I tell the story in the book of a friend of mine who went to work for a large uh, Christian organization and calls me within probably two weeks and says, I think I made a bad decision. Uh, he goes into this, this organization 
that sees itself as sort of God's gift to what they did, their particular mission in the world. They do it better than anyone else. Uh, and they are more godly and more kingdom focused and more Jesus centered and more. And, and there's no sense of humility whatsoever. Uh, so, so you know it when you're around people or in systems where there's constant competition, constant comparison, a, a continual sense of grandiosity, we're better. You know, our church has the better programs, better worship, better preaching than the church down the road. Uh, that, that's a pretty good indication that you're probably swimming in the waters of a narcissistic system. Wow. Wow. I mean, that is so probably convicting for a lot of people who are in leadership in churches who are listening to this. But obviously, we have a, a, a series of people who are listening to this as well, who aren't in leadership, who are just checking this out. And they're like, uh, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be a part of a system, you know, that's yeah. like that. So how do you how do you go about like Peter was saying, like lunch pail Monday through Friday? Um, you, you know, you say you want to check out a, a church or a, or a Christian ministry and you're like, I want to check this out, but I don't want to be part of a dysfunctional system. Like, how do you even move forward with that? Um, what are the first steps that you take to go, okay, I want to be part of a healthy system, not something yeah. that's dysfunctional. How, how do yeah. you do that? Yeah, that's tough, you know, because we, we go looking for it sometimes. And uh, I, I know in my own work over the last 20 plus years, I'm talking about my own therapeutic work, mm -hmm. I've come to realize that I, I looked for this very early on. I wanted to be a part of something special, something unique and something big and something good, something doing great things in the world, you know. And I had this tendency to follow leaders who are a whole lot more confident than me. Uh, and that met me in my own insecurities. And so part of the answer to your question is you sort of have to know yourself. Uh, lay people who go looking for a church uh, can often be impressed by, you know, the, the big light show, uh, you know, the, the, the strong, competent, engaging, inspiring leader, uh, you know, on stage, unwittingly setting themselves up. To, to, uh, to be under narcissistic leadership, right? And so I say, what does it look like for us to seek out leaders who are humble, churches that uh, are not constantly competing and comparing? Like we do it better than any church has ever done it before. And maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but you can hear that from the mouths of, of pastors. God is really blessing us. God is really doing great things here. Uh, what does it look like to follow a humble leader? Uh, what does she sound like? What does he sound like? Probably sounds a whole lot more like Jesus. Uh, and so we've mm. got to tune our ears, I think, in new ways to kind of the presence of Jesus in the world, uh, in, in others, in churches, in systems. And sadly, I think we've been set up uh, with lots and lots of systems and leaders who are more power hungry than Jesus ever was. Wow, I am. Um, <clears throat> I so appreciate that. And and one of the things that I think it, this is a good time to kind of bring up. We we talk about the Enneagram a lot, and okay. what I love about what what you've been doing is there's a, you know, there's the leaders and systems that abuse that abuse, but then there's what narcissism is in you already, and mm -hmm. um, 
you know, as an Enneagram too, like the most convicting part of the book was reading the benevolent narcissist, like, and thinking (laughs) like, Hey, yeah. Thinking like, Hey, I know what I'm talking about and I'm so kind to people. And, um, I guess in some senses, the, the idea of the book too, is to cause us to look inward. What does that process look like? And I don't think you need to go through all the narcissists or all the Enneagram types, but why is self-awareness so important? Yeah, well, I think the Enneagram types, and, and if you're not familiar, if you're listening, you're not familiar, it's just kind of nine styles of coping in the world, uh, not personality types so much as like nine painfully problematic ways of coping in, in, in the world. And I think that they they shine a light on uh, these ways of coping, these strategies. Uh, so for you, as a two, naming the benevolent narcissism uh, that uh, you know, this is the person who seeks to meet other people's needs, but really it's a kind of subtle way of meeting your own needs. And when you realize that, uh, well, that can be convicting. That can be hard. I'm sure that's hard to hear or hard to read. But at the same time, a sense of like, oh, yeah, I get that. There's a massive hole in my heart that I'm looking to fill. I do it by helping others. Or if I'm a three, I do it by by achieving. You know, the three often loves the stage, loves the spotlight. Uh, and so I'm going to get the attention that I need, the affection that I need by, uh, by winning, by succeeding. Uh, or the, the one I call the perfectionist. Uh, the one needs to be right. And we see a lot of this in the church. We see this in the Pharisees and, you know, in the New Testament. You need to be right. And so they're constantly kind of setting up standards that are impossible for anyone else to, to reach or to meet and so on. And so each one of these nine uh, types is a way of uncovering how we get our needs met. Uh, in in uh, sometimes painful and, and problematic ways. And, and listen, there are relational implications for each one of these styles of, of relating to. These are the ways that we hurt people. So the perfectionist or the savior or the, the achiever or the intellectual or whoever it is will, will have a particular way of wounding another that is unique to his or her style of relating. So what I think you're describing here, Chuck, is that in order to truly spot it in environments where we might be like, we have to have an awareness of our own selves and that's where it kind of starts. Is, is that, is that kind of one of your fundamental things that you're, you're trying to get people to understand is that we need to really deal with our own stuff before we, so that we can spot these unhealthy environments. Yeah. 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 And, and I mean, we're doing this generally when we're in unhealthy environments, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I wish, I, I wish I could rewind and go back and get really healthy, but you know, I, I did loads of therapy and then it showed up again in my life 10 years later, you know, it's so, yeah, self-awareness is so important. Um, understanding how you relate, but also understanding um, how your tendency to, to sort of move into systems or relationships at times that are uh, dangerous or toxic for you. And, and here again, uh, we all do this in subtle ways. And uh, I, I've, one of the things that I hope to convey um, as I do podcasts like this is that as much as people might think, well, he's got it figured out, uh, he'd never walk into a situation like that again. I always find myself uh, wrestling with these dynamics. It's never as clear as you think it is. And so give mm. yourself some grace. Uh, allow yourself to see it maybe a little bit more slowly, like that frog in that boiling 
pot of, pot of water, right? Maybe it dawns on you a little bit later than you think it should. That's okay. Um, I'm a slow learner too. And so when, when we notice it, when we see it, then, then let's do what we need to do to, to move toward health. Hmm. Can that's great, can, Chuck. Let me, I'll go. Oh, no, go, go ahead, Peter. That's one of our Corona moments right there. There we go. Uh, so, Chuck, what I'm thinking about now is <clears throat> so probably the majority of the leaders that we're talking to aren't necessarily church leaders, but they're business leaders, yeah, they're you know, managers. Um, yeah. most people, you know, are, are outside the church. And all of a sudden now there's this little inkling inside of them. Like I probably have some narcissistic tendencies. You yeah. know, if you're a leader, church or, or church or marketplace, where do you even start to get healthy so that you can be better for the people that God's called you to lead? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, first of all, if, if you're a leader, you're listening to this and you're wondering about it. I love the curiosity. I think we start with curiosity. Um, there, there's something that's really humble about a leader who says, I wonder, I wonder if this is me in some way or another. And one of the things I like to do, one of my own practices that I hope, uh, in, in the churches that I've served in, uh, now as a seminary professors, I will say to people who, uh, I lead, um, I, you have an invitation to come to me anytime and share with me how I impact you. Uh, that's a that's a question that I think every leader should ask. How, how do I impact the people who I lead? And there should be some freedom for your people to come to you and say, "Hey, you know, the other day when we were in the meeting and you talked over me, I, I kind of felt a little intimidated. I kind of felt like you didn't want my voice heard. Uh, is there something about that that you want to talk to me about? You know, that that kind of thing. And if you are a leader listening right now and you've you've got that kind of curiosity, I think that's a sign of humility. So listen and listen well and be willing to hear the hard stuff uh, and, and uh, to own it uh, where you need to own it. How do, you do that? How do you cultivate an environment where that is happening, Chuck? Like, like, cause, yeah. cause that, that sounds nice in theory, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I think yeah. for those of us who are leading though, it's pretty complex to do well and to say, yeah. no, no, I really want you to come to me and, and tell me these things. So how, how do you do that? Yeah, so uh, you you cultivate trust over time, right? I mean, this is about relationship. This is about relational integrity and wholeness. And that doesn't happen uh, via techniques. There's not a three-step or a seven-step process. Relationships are messy. And uh, honesty can be costly in relationship. And so we cultivate spaces of courageous honesty and vulnerability with one another. We cultivate trust. We, we cultivate accountable systems. In other words, where each person within the system is accountable to the other. And there's no one so high, as I see oftentimes in like church planning context, so high on the totem pole that he's not accountable, you know, or he's somehow above the rest. Uh, you talked about self-awareness earlier, John. I mean, I think it's cultivating not only a self-awareness, but like a systemic awareness. Can we be honest about how we experience the system or how particular structures, you know, every, every, every system has uh, different structures and different theological traditions have different systems and structures, right? And can we be honest about how we're implicated in this? If I'm in a 
let's say, complementarian belief system? Can I be honest about, as a woman, how that feels for me? Uh, and not just be told, well, that's what scripture says. And we don't ask questions about that, right? Which would be a, mm. kind of a form of spiritual abuse, silencing someone. And so I, I hope you hear in that, that that takes work. And ultimately, I would hope that it would lead to humility. Uh, uh, I, I wish I could say, here are the five things that I do. If I were, but no, actually, there's there's a sense that this happens over time, and it happens as we have the courage to move toward one another with with a kind of radical honesty. Uh, Chuck, <clears throat> one of the things that's become a, a phrase that you talk a lot about, and just it goes along with what you're even talking about now, which how do we create environments of that? Can you help define what gaslighting is and how it affects people and organizations? Because I think that that would be helpful as we kind of engage this topic. Yeah, gaslighting is another form of psychological abuse. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's sort of a style of, of engaging another that uh, makes them feel crazy. Uh, we've all been in situations where, uh, where someone has questioned our sense of reality, you know, mm. no, no, it didn't happen that way. Uh, if, if you're married, you've experienced this. If you've had a roommate, you've experienced, no, that's not what we said. That's not what I said yesterday. And you think to yourself, my goodness, did I, was I even in that conversation? Did I hear that, uh, correctly? That mm. happens in average everyday relationships, but abusers actually use this as a, as a, as a, tool for manipulation. I mean, they actually, they actually work to make the other person feel crazy. And as this happens over time, there, there is this sense that uh, maybe, maybe I am crazy. I mean, I thought I had a sense of what was going on in the church. I thought I had a sense of what happened in the last couple of leadership meetings, but, but maybe I'm off. I mean, he does have the master of divinity. Uh, he does have reverend next to his name. I mean, he must be a whole lot more clear than, uh, th than I am. And so it's a form of crazy making, uh, and it's it's uh, toxic and dangerous. What are some of those, oh man? You're, you're talking about this, and and all these bells are going off inside of my head. So I, yeah. I'm just I'm just tracking with you. Um, wh what are some of those common phrases that you would associate with gaslighting? Uh, do you have some phrases? I mean, I have a few in my mind that I'm thinking of right now that I've heard people say. That I'm yeah. like, oh my goodness, I, this when I'm, I'm, uh, this I, I almost feel it in this moment, you know, uh, I'm triggered yeah. in the moment thinking about yeah. it. But what yeah. are some of those phrases that you would associate with that? Yeah, well, I, I just heard one the other day, you know, and it, with this whole new reality, you said, you know, we're we're taping this right now under COVID nineteen. Uh, church staffs and pastors are scrambling to get technology together, and and there was an incident that happened. I was talking to someone on the church staff the other day. And um, she was sharing a story and she said that the pastor, she conveyed something that happened and the pastor said, that's not what happened. Um, and I said, tell, tell me about that. And she says, well, you know, he always says that. That's not what happened. And, and there it was. I mean, just as five minutes into the phone call, um, mm. she named a pattern of gaslighting, crazy making gaslighting in, in their relationship where whenever Whenever she brings some sort of feedback, like she, this pastor had actually asked her to go out to Best Buy and buy the, all the equipment because he didn't want to endanger his family and his young kids with COVID. Oh. She's married and has young kids. Right? Oh. And so, uh, 
so anyway, the phrase there was that's not what uh, that's not what happened, right? Um, mm. There are lots of different phrases. I'd be curious to hear what's the phrase that you've heard, uh, John. Well, I mean, uh, I, there's a few. One of the ones that pops to the front of my mind is, uh, oh, that's not what I meant. Yeah, like, I right. didn't mean that. Yeah. And that <laughs> kind of being a a way to get out of whatever it is you're being, you know, kind of accused of. Oh, I didn't mean it that way. Yeah, um, that was yeah. not my so, intention. <laughs> right. In other words, well, that's really your fra- fault, you know, for mm-hmm. feeling that way or for doing it and so yeah. you should just get over it um yeah. that's one of the yeah. ones that pops to the front of my mind anyway oh i didn't yeah. mean that yeah and there's always a defense of uh, that wasn't my intention i didn't mean mm-hmm. it that way right? right and um without seeing their impact on another and oftentimes when we're talking about we're distinguishing an abuse um we we we, we like to use the we like to make a distinction between intention and impact to say mm-hmm. uh you've got to be more attentive to how you impacted a person rather than defending what you intended to say on the front end. But people who gaslight are not concerned about that. They're constantly sort of twisting meaning um, and defending themselves, protecting themselves. And that's a sure sign of narcissism right there. Mm. I I think I've heard just to add to the, like, and again, I, you know, this is kind of where strengths become weaknesses and stuff like sometimes people will use the thing that they feedback you on like like well you're just sensitive you know and there's truth like there's truth of like just get over yourself but sometimes gaslighting feels like let me take the one thing that like i know that's really gonna buy and um you know and i also just kind of think of gaslighting of like no we're just right like yeah and and what what's funny about we're just right is it's selective on the facts. Yeah. Like, and so you can take two or three metrics and decide, okay, this is the way it is. Or like, you don't even like go with the whole story. So I, I think those are some like gaslighting things yeah. that I've noticed. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, think, if you think about it, someone who's narcissistic uh, is profoundly self-protective. Um, he's got a story of shame, maybe being bullied uh, in, in childhood, abused perhaps himself. So he knows places of vulnerability uh, because he himself or she herself is vulnerable uh, at, a, at a kind of core level. And so um, narcissistic abusers have this extraordinary way of finding, as, as you say, the weak spots in someone's armor, right? You're, you're just sensitive. Um, you just don't have an attention to detail like I have. That's, a, that's okay. I know, I know you just don't see things the way I see things. And, and it can sound almost kind of spiritual. Like maybe, maybe he did, does just have an insight that I don't have. Uh, after all, you know, he's so godly. He's written 17 books and, you know, he's on this stage every week. Yeah, that's, that's what can be so tricky. And that's why I, I like to use that image of that frog in the boiling kettle, you know, because you just, you don't feel it. You don't sense it uh, until it starts to scold you. And then you wake up to it and you say, ouch, that hurts. That really hurts. Hmm. Chuck, do you think there are certain people who are more susceptible to being in uh, narcissistic or spiritually abusive environments? Are there types of people who are who are just more naturally... Uh, inclined to be a part of those systems? 
Yeah, I think it goes back to some of what we were talking about earlier. Um, we, sometimes in in narcissism speak, we talk about the ideal hungry follower of a narcissistic leader. And um, she or he is the person who's looking for someone that that uh, is that ideal, who sort of embodies uh, what they think they ought to be. And so um, the sanctified Enneagram to the benevolent narcissist, right? I, I want to be as giving as he is. Or I want to be as put together as that sanctified Enneagram 3 narcissist. You know, I want to be as special, as unique, as artsy as that Enneagram 4, you know, or as smart as that 5, whatever it is. And so we sort of put him or her up on that pedestal. And so is there a personality type more susceptible than another? I don't know. I do think uh, those of us who have some experience of being wounded, who uh, maybe maybe didn't have... A, maybe, the healthiest environment growing up, you know, and there's some deep unmet needs within us. We're kind of looking for that person, you know, who's, who's got the strength that we, we long for, uh, who meets particular kinds of needs that are unmet within us. Wow. That's really good. I, I kind of want to come on to the other side of that question. Um, <clears throat> as we kind of close with these two final questions, but so here's the deal. I, I, I've given up on the church because of abusive leaders. We've seen a lot of stories about deconstruction. Yeah. You know, Chuck, why should I entertain even coming back? Yeah, well, that, that's a great question. And, and maybe you shouldn't. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think that answer is not be, uh, best or that question is not best answered theoretically because everyone has a story, a unique story, right? And I'm a uh, one of my hats is that of a therapist. And I love to sit with people in those spaces of disorientation and disruption and confusion and hold that question, not answer it for them, but say, yeah, why should you come back? I don't know. Uh, I, so the first thing I'd want to do, Peter, is just honor that question. I think it takes courage even, even to cry out in that kind of way. And then I'd say, um, if you, if you read the Bible, you see a lot of people asking those kinds of questions, like, why God? And you see a lot of leaders messing up. Uh, it seems that we are a people with a long history, a kind of long sorted history of abusing power, of manipulating, of, of um, you know, of, of I think falling into the trap of, of power and prestige, relevance and affection and all these kinds of things that are contrary to the gospel of Jesus. And so um, I just I'd want to honor that. And I want to say the people of God are broken people. We've, we, we have a sordid history. We're a big dysfunctional family. And so uh, if you do come back, come back choosing to be a part of that dysfunctional family, much as maybe some of you go to Thanksgiving dinners where you're sitting with your crazy uncle, right? Who loves the, the crazy president. And, you know, you're about to have a hard conversation. You know, you're, you're choosing to sit there um, and you're doing it intentionally. And I think that's what we do when we come back to faith. We, we choose a family that isn't perfect, um, but at the center of that story is, is Jesus. And I think that's my hope. Uh, I, I, sometimes I give up hope on the church, uh, but but I don't I haven't given up hope on Jesus and mm. Jesus's capacity to meet us in the midst of our pain. Mm. So it seems to me, Chuck, what you're describing is if someone is in that situation to look for an environment 
obviously that isn't perfect, but that is, but that the leaders look like Jesus to the best yeah. of their ability. Yeah. That's, that's what you're right. describing. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And it gets back to that question we were talking about earlier, Ron, you know, what's an environment that, uh, where, uh, have you seen an environment where there's humility, trust, uh, healthy feedback given back and forth. Um, those kinds of environments are environments that I, I look for, you know, and they're out there. Uh, I, I, I hope that my book is a hopeful book in that sense, uh, in, in the sense that I haven't given up on the church. Um, I'm relentlessly trying to pursue health within the church and wholeness within the church. And part, part of what we need to do in that process is diagnose unhealth. Right. And so then, then we can pursue what's good and what's true and what's beautiful for the, for the church. Mm. So Chuck, we, we like to close every interview with a question. And um, I, I think that you might be one of our first guests to actually say why God, the title of our asset. So thank you. But uh, we close the interview with a question of what does Jesus have to do uh, with this conversation. And so the way we close, uh, John and I start and then, um, you know, because my wife's a mental health therapist, I feel like I can joke like this, but <laughs> if we messed up theologically or psychologically, you can clean us up from there. And, um, so what does Jesus have to do with this? I, I guess I'll get it started. Then I'll throw to you, John. Sound good. Yeah, sounds great. All right. <laughs> um, as I think about this question, uh, this morning I was reading John 21, and um, it's always kind of scary when you read your name in the Bible, and John 21 is after the resurrection, Jesus is reconciling Peter back to him after denying him and, and running from him, and I, I, I think about that picture and how we all need that picture of how God wants to restore us. So if you're someone who has been abused and hurt by the church, God wants to restore you. Um, if you're a narcissistic leader with pain in your past, God wants to restore you. And I just believe that that picture is for all of us to wrestle with, that it's not about getting even or getting revenge or getting control, but you know, it's as we've been really talking about, it's getting to a humble place that our most important position is someone created in God's image, loved by him, and knowing that our identity shapes how we live. So that's how I'd answer that. John, what do you think? Yeah, it's it's kind of curious, Peter, that you and I were both reading in John this morning. And uh, I, I was just reading about Jesus actually washing the disciples feet and how what an amazing example that is for us to follow i think about what jesus would say about this topic i think he said it all right there um as i have done for you do for each other and a leader that's worth following is somebody who we can look at their life and see Jesus in their life, can see that attitude of service. That like like Chuck said, there's nobody that's perfect. We all we all fall short in a bunch of different ways. But I think the attitude 
of humility and the attitude of truly serving other people that's the type of leader that i want to follow that's the type of leader who i want to be um but it isn't easy and but at the same time i think that's who jesus calls us to be and that's who jesus invites us to experience uh you know leading with and leading like so Jesus simply puts it there for us, you know, as I have done for you, do for each other. Uh, I washed your feet, the lowest thing that you could possibly do. That's the way that I want you to live and lead with each other. So that's how I would say Jesus would speak to us in this. But Chuck, ultimately, we want you to have the last word on this. So... Well, I think you're both heretics, and yeah. uh, <laughs> so, most people do. So that's that works. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's that's so good. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I'll just I'll I'll think about this um, for the sake of those who are listening and perhaps been wounded by narcissistic leaders uh, who've been abused, emotionally abused, spiritually abused. Uh, Jesus is blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Right. I think Jesus would be right there alongside the disempowered, right there alongside the traumatized, uh, right there alongside the terrified. And so um, I've got yeah. hope that Jesus will meet anyone who's listening right now, anyone who has that question, why God, why, why did, did this leader who I trusted do this to me, that they'd, uh, that they'd find Jesus right alongside them in that space. Chuck, thank you so much uh, for being with us today. As we close this podcast, uh, Chuck is on Twitter, especially. Um, he's also on Facebook and Instagram. Just search Chuck DeGroat. The book, uh, which I've read and I highly recommend, is When Narcissism Comes to Church. Um, you know, we we want to be of help to you. To find out more about the Why God Why podcast, you can go to whygodwhypodcast.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And uh, to share this episode, use the hashtag WGWpodcast. Leave, uh, leave a review. Give us a five-star rating, as I would say. John would say, give us an honest rating, which is five stars. So we'll go either well, way. So thank you <laughs> hey, so well, much you know. for joining us today. All right. <laughs> I like it. <laughs>